Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church on the Nicolette Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Gordon Stewart, moderator of the Town Hall Forum and senior pastor here at Westminster Church. I would like to thank the co-sponsor for today's Town Hall Forum, Forum speaker, the United Nations Association of Minnesota. Since 1980, the Town Hall Forum has brought to the airwaves of Minnesota Public Radio and the live audience here at the church, voices of conscience who address key ethical issues from key issues from an ethical perspective. And this year, the Town Hall Forum's focus is on building a civil society. Today's speaker, the Honorable Elliot Richardson, brings to the Town Hall Forum a distinguished career of public service. A graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School, he served the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare from 1957 to 1959, serving later as Lieutenant Governor and Attorney General for the state of Massachusetts. Mr. Richardson went on to be appointed Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, Secretary of Defense, and Attorney General of the United States during the Nixon administration. He resigned in October of 1973 to protest Mr. Nixon's order to fire the special prosecutor in the Watergate affair. In 1975, Mr. Richardson was appointed U.S. Ambassador to Great Britain. In 1976, he was appointed Secretary of Commerce, and in 1977, was appointed Special Representative of the President to the Law of the Sea Conference. In 1989, he was appointed by the UN Secretary General as the General Secretary's Special Representative for monitoring the electoral process in Nicaragua. From 1989 until last year, he served as Special Representative of the President in the Philippines. Through his work as an important international statesman, Mr. Richardson also became a personal friend of Yitzhak Rabin and suffers his loss with us and with the Israeli people. Columnist Ellen Goodman wrote in her weekly column reflecting on the tragic assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, the most important divide in this hard world is not over bloodlines or ways of worship. It's between those who pursue reason and those who dismiss it. It's between those who build and those who bomb. For the past 50 years, the United Nations has sought to pursue the course of reason based on our common interest as a community of nations. Please welcome to the Town Hall Forum a statesman who has given his life to building up rather than destroying, a public servant, a man of deep conscience and reason, speaking on the topic the United Nations, after 50 years, what have we learned? Please welcome the Honorable Elliot Richardson. Thank you very much, Reverend Stewart for those very kind and comprehensive words. Uh, 
Ladies and gentlemen, I stand here with a sense both of appreciation and apprehension. Uh, it's a little bit intimidating to hear oneself referred to as a statesman, a, uh, a term that I, I think of as uh, most appropriately applied posthumously. <laughs> the uh, truth is that I stand before you and with considerable pride as a member of three of the world's most vilified professions. I am a bureaucrat, a politician, and a lawyer. <laughs> and I won't, I won't try to sort out the relative order among those three. But indeed, the words of Ellen Goodman that were just quoted by Reverend Stewart are very much central to the roles of all three of those capacities insofar as they deal with law, rationality, and the effort to develop an ordered civil society. The loss of Prime Minister Rabin does indeed shock us to a renewed awareness of the difficulty of the unremitting effort to achieve these ends. It was my privilege in the first two years of the Nixon administration when I was number two at the Department of State to work very closely with then Ambassador Rabin toward the ends of bringing about a dialogue between the frontline Arab states of the Middle East and the nation of Israel. And while further work remains to be done toward the ends for which Prime Minister Rabin was working when he was brutally assassinated. Nevertheless, much has been accomplished. And most of all, the validity of efforts toward those ends has been reaffirmed. More broadly, what Prime Minister Rabin and the heads of neighboring states and uh, Arafat as the leader of the PLO were seeking to achieve was an effort embraced within the purposes of the United Nations. And I can't do better than to remind us all of those purposes by reading the preamble of the Charter of the United Nations. We, the peoples of the United Nations, determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to mankind, and to reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights in the dignity and worth of the human person, 
in the equal rights of men and women and of nations large and small, and to establish conditions under which justice and respect for the obligations arising from treaties and other sources of international law can be maintained, and to promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom, and for these ends, to practice tolerance and live together in peace with one another as good neighbors, and to unite our strength to maintain international peace and security, and to ensure by the acceptance of principles and the institution of methods that armed force shall not be used save in the common interest and to employ international machinery for the promotion of the economic and social advancement of all peoples, have resolved to combine our efforts to accomplish these aims. Accordingly, our respective governments, through representatives assembled in the city of San Francisco, who have exhibited their full powers found to be in good and due form, have agreed to the present Charter of the United Nations and do hereby establish an international organization to be known as the United Nations. The Charter of the United Nations was therefore duly signed in San Francisco on the 26th of June, 1945, As the, at the conclusion of the United Nations Conference on International Organizations. And the Charter came into force on the 24th of October, 1945, just a few days more than 50 years ago. The world, of course, at that time attached very high hopes to the fulfillment of the purposes set forth in the Charter. The framers of that, of the, that language, the delegates who came together in San Francisco just over 50 years ago, remembered well the tragic fate of the League of Nations they were determined so far as possible to avoid the weaknesses of the League and to create an organization that could effectively address problems of mutual security and the prevention of bloodshed. So confident was Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the practical potential for the achievement of these ends, that in a highly applauded speech given uh, several months before the convening of the conference in San Francisco, he pictured the U.S. representative at the United Nations voting on the deployment of U.S. military force without consulting anyone in Washington. And uh, 
Roosevelt used the analogy of having a soldier in the field who shouldn't have to consult somebody in Washington before deciding upon the commitment of the forces under his command. There has, of course, been considerable disappointment in the security-related role of the United Nations in the supervening years. Much of that attributable certainly to the deadlock developed between the two leading powers on the United Nations Security Council, each of which, of course, with the the other five, other three permanent members had been given veto power over the commitment of forces or the involvement of the United Nations in any peacekeeping effort. Concurrently with the establishment of the bodies called for by the United Nations Charter itself, were the organizations that came into being as a result of the Bretton Woods Conference held in the same year that were addressed to the role of the United Nations in uh, the language of the Charter of Promoting Social Progress and Better Standards of Life in Larger Freedom, to which the founders pledged themselves to employ international machinery for the promotion of the economic and social advancement of all peoples. And just these, of course, were the aims of the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, more generally known as the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and a proposed World Trade Organization discussed and worked out in broad terms at the same time as the other two. As it turned out, of course, the uh, trade dimension was dealt with only through a general agreement, and it was just this year that, that a World Trade Organization finally came into existence. Here again, one could say that the high hopes reflected in the Charter have not entirely been fulfilled, that there has been considerable disappointment that the gulf between rich nations and poor remains so wide and that within many nations, including our own, the gap between rich and poor is still so wide, and in our own case, in fact, getting wider. But notwithstanding these disappointments, it is appropriate, timely, and indeed necessary now, when so much skepticism is being raised as to the role and value of the nations to, to remember that a great deal has, in fact, been accomplished in its name and under its leadership. Its peacekeeping role, for example, because, on the whole, it has worked so well, has 
become almost unnoticed. In Cyprus, in the Sinai, at a critical stage in the Belgian Congo and in many other places, blue-helmeted forces have been brought to bear for the purpose of helping parties that had already agreed to a ceasefire or some uneasy peace to preserve those commitments. The UN forces have served not in a strictly military capacity, although in uniform, but essentially as a, as a buffer between the parties and as a reminder of their commitment to peace. In economic development and, and other areas of human concern from health to education to environmental protection, the United Nations and the affiliated organizations that form part of the United Nations family have rendered services that ought constantly to be remembered for permanent achievements to human well-being. The eradication of smallpox, the raising of standards of child health through the United Nations International Children's Fund, the provision of relief to hundreds and thousands of refugees at a given time and millions of refugees over the years are all services that have been carried out under the United Nations <coughs> through <coughs> United Nations related organizations. Those services in the aggregate constitute a legacy that we who look back on the creation of the United Nations do well to remember and to reaffirm. And yet, it is true that a sense of disappointment that there has been a shortfall in the achievement of the goals of the United Nations as originally set forth is a very widespread feeling. One hears a lot nowadays about United Nations, quote, reform, unquote. It would be easy at this point for me to turn aside and, and discuss the specifics of reform. Actually, the so-called reforms are quite narrowly directed to internal matters of administration, coordination, better integration of United Nations programs and activities, <clears throat> greater efficiency, and certainly all these are important objectives. They're the kinds of objectives that any bureaucratic organization, including American businesses, need constantly to be working at. But it's also fair to say that, that the reforms being discussed do not go to the heart of the difficulties 
that explain why <coughs> there is a sense of disappointment toward the United Nations. What then does explain this disappointment? The answer, I think, can be stated summarily as stemming from a lack of realism. The expectations <clears throat> for the United Nations have been out of line with the capacity and the will of human society to fulfill. Take, for example, <clears throat> the security-related role of the United Nations. Its charter in Chapter 7 speaks in terms of threats to the peace, threats to order, and provides for the, the deployment of United Nations forces to deal with these situations. In fact, throughout the history of the United Nations, there were only two major responses to a breach of the peace that fell squarely under the terms of Chapter 7. One uh, was in Korea, and that came about because, as it happened, the Soviet Union boycotted the Security Council meeting at which a resolution for UN intervention in Korea was addressed. The other was, of course, in the Gulf War. At the end of the Gulf War, it was being said that, that because now the, the, Russia was cooperating with the West, China was supportive of the UN resolutions authorizing intervention in the Gulf, <clears throat> that the uh, United Nations was at last fulfilling its original promise. But it was not long afterwards, not long after President Bush had spoken of the advent of a new world order that people were talking again about a new world disorder. They were looking at the situations in Somalia, Bosnia, Haiti, many other places around the world where Hundreds of thousands of people were continuing to be killed. There were, at that point, some 32 conflicts simultaneously underway with annual death tolls of 5,000 or more. What had happened to the New World Order? Surprisingly, what I saw happening was what I had 
again and again during the years in which I was chairman of the United Nations Association of the United States. <clears throat> called attention to as an obvious possibility. <clears throat> I used to, in my speeches in those days, say over and over again, with the end of the Cold War, the world community will suddenly awaken to the anomaly inherent in the fact that for 40 years it has been bleeding with compassion for the victims of famines, floods, earthquakes, and tornadoes while turning its back on the vastly greater death and destruction wrought by small wars. What had actually happened with the end of the Cold War and in the aftermath of the Gulf War was that these small conflicts were now for the first time on the international radar screen. We began to talk about the CNN effect. And the CNN effect did indeed reflect a process whereby a few among these 32 conflicts were the ones that were noticed and that now were put on the Security Council agenda. Conflicts of that kind had never been proposed for the UN Security Council agenda before that. What about Idi Amin in Uganda? It was never suggested that this was a threat to international peace and security. What had happened for the first time in human history was that major countries and many other countries around the world for the first time felt that they had some sort of responsibility to the prevention of bloodshed or to the achievement or enforcement of peace in places where those countries had no national security interest at stake. That there, these conflicts should be on the international agenda at all is new. Small wonder then that neither we nor any other country have ready-made answers as to how to address them. Especially this is true when you stop to consider how the burdens are to be shared. If international deployment of force is to be dependent upon a direct correlation to a national interest, then the nation that commits forces to that conflict is doing so on a basis commensurate with its own national interest as it calculates that interest. But if the interest is one broadly shared on an undivided basis by the world community as a whole, then the only measures are population size, economic strength, perhaps military capacity. But in any event, the question of an assumption of is responsibility totally disproportionate to the situation is hardly to be expected. And this applies particularly to the blood risk. Even in the Gulf War, the United States assumed 75% of the blood risk, even though our share of the economic and strategic concerns at stake could at most have been no more than 25%.
There is the question indeed whether, despite humanitarian concern, despite a sense of conscience toward the need for doing something about these conflicts, we're prepared to accept any significant loss of life at all. The UN Charter under Chapter 7 assumed that in, in the case of threats to the peace or breaches of peace, that nations would commit contingents that would engage in fighting, not peacekeeping units separating parties who had already agreed on a peace, not units performing the role that would be performed if and when a peace agreement is achieved in Bosnia, but UN forces that would, would engage in the mission of stopping the conflict, putting the fighting to an end. Well, naturally enough, the question of how these burdens are to be shared and what indeed they are and how much sacrifice should be accepted and whether it should include the loss of life and how much loss of life are all questions that will take a long time to resolve. As to the non-security related issues, <clears throat> it is hardly to be expected that Multilateral organizations, no matter how well led, how efficient, how effective in the application of their resources, are going to eradicate the, the inevitable repercussions of population growth, or for that matter, to take a single example, climate change. Many of you were aware of and perhaps followed the work of the so-called Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro in June of 1992, which uh, adopted a lengthy document called Agenda 21, addressing a whole array of global environmental issues from biodiversity to desertification, deforestation, and climate change. One of the products of that conference was a so-called framework treaty on climate change. It pledged the industrial countries to a, an effort to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by the year 2000 to their 1990 level. As of the assessment at an interim meeting in Berlin last spring, no country, including the United States, was meeting those goals and, even if they did, the result would be at best to defer a potentially disastrous set of impacts of global warming by maybe 10 or 20 years. These consequences, when you stop to think about them, dwarf any combined set of disasters that humanity has ever considered before. We're talking about the very real potential for a full meters increase in the level of the oceans by the middle of the next century at least by the end of the next century, 
a uh, shift in the climate zone northward that could result in the desertification of much of the United States and southern Russia, while opening up areas of northern Russia and Canada to wheat production, with many other repercussions affecting patterns of disease transmission, and on and on and on. And yet, obviously, the costs of the reduction of hydrocarbon combustion that would be required effectively to deal with the potential of global warming would be far greater than anything human beings have heretofore addressed as a collective effort through international agreement and, and backed up by some kind of multilateral enforcement. And yet, on the other hand, we're talking here not about remote risks. Take a very remote risk for which we in the United States have spent, I don't know how many billions, I'm going to find out, a lot, <clears throat> which is the elimination of the possibility that one of our nuclear power plants will have a meltdown analogous to the one that occurred at Chernobyl. Well, the risk, even before we spent any of this money, was very, very remote. Now, as a result of the much higher standards enforced by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, it's down virtually to zero, or close to zero. <clears throat> the, I talked to the Deputy Science Advisor to the President this week about climate change and asked him, what are the odds that there will be this one centimeter rise in the level of the ocean by the middle of the next century, with the resulting flooding of a third of Bangladesh and the Andaman Islands and the inhabitability of much of coastal Florida? I said, uh, one in 10, 50-50? He said, a lot closer to 50-50 than one in 10. And yet we are virtually, we're doing virtually nothing. The cost would indeed be enormous. The disruption's huge. So when you come to the question of how is the UN doing, realism requires that you look at the failures of the UN in terms of the unwillingness of people to make the sacrifices, to take the actions. The United Nations is not an entity at all. It is a name for the nation states collectively who have come together. But the United Nations can do nothing except by vote of its General Assembly or by vote of the Security Council. It amuses me that the so-called realpolitikers, the believers in, in the now definition of territorial, economic, and security interests of nations, treat as unreal the ideals embodied in the Charter. It amuses me because I cannot think of any significant war since the, uh, perhaps the 
16th century that can be explained in the terms of realpolitik. Take the Cold War as a recent example. On the one side, you had ancient drives toward aggrandizement that began with imperial Russia. Coupled with that was the zeal to win converts to a lay religion, an ideological faith, communism. These two were reinforced by a paranoid concern with encirclement and the worry lest other countries seek to suppress or frustrate these intangible aims, having nothing to do with any real practical day-to-day -day security or economic interests of the Russian people or any of the countries then belonging to the USSR. On the Western side, what were we concerned about? We spoke of and we meant it, that we were uniting the free world against totalitarianism, against the deadening threats to liberty wrought by communism. These were the things that resulted in the piling up of hundreds of billions of dollars of expenditures on both sides. The ideals of the United Nations are at least as real. People do care about other people. They may, we may and must see our own interests first. We owe responsibilities to ourselves, our children, our communities, our nation. But to say that our concern stops with them is unrealistic. We do care about other people. It would be interesting, while we are dealing with the, what are fundamentally ethical questions, to think about the meaning of the admonition, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Is that a commandment? Or is it simply a statement of fact? Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself because thou canst not help it. You are part of humankind. You are linked not only to the people nearest to you. You cannot even be defined except in relationship to them. But your identity, your involvement with them extends outward to be sure in, in concentric circles in which, in which the bonds weaken at the remote outer reaches, whether today or as to future generations. But in either case, the bonds are real. When 
John Donne said, Every man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. He meant just that. It was a statement of a reality. We are involved in mankind, and the United Nations, the aims of the Charter of the United Nations, the mechanisms of that Charter, address means whereby our involvement in mankind can be dealt with in such a way as to give us a deeper sense that our sharing of this earth with our fellow human beings is being addressed in a more constructive and a more positive way. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Richardson. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. Today's speaker is distinguished public servant, the Honorable Elliot Richardson, who has just spoken on the question, the United Nations, after 50 years, what have we learned? Mr. Richardson is the former national chair of the UN Association former U.S. Attorney General, Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, and Under Secretary of State. Mr. Richardson served most recently as Special Representative of the President to the Philippines. Here in the hall, while the ushers collect the questions from those in the audience, those of you in the radio listening audience may call in a question by dialing 332-3421. Mr. Richardson, if you would please come back to uh, the podium for a short period of questions. In order for the United Nations to become more effective and in order for the kind of realism of which you spoke, in which we all come to a clearer understanding that what happens to one of us happens to all of us, what can we as citizens do to help to promote the effectiveness of the UN? and that sense of realism? Well, well I think, Reverend Stewart, the, the most important thing we can do is to try to be clear in our own minds as to what these issues are and to communicate our ideas to those who act for us through the political process. In fact, what I'm saying really reflects the underlying premise of the Westminster Forum itself and it, as, at the same time the very purpose of the United Nations Association of the USA. During my own years at the UNA, I, my greatest interest was in trying to support and strengthen chapters like the very effective one the UNA has here in Minnesota. 
because these are vehicles whereby people can can develop their ideas about how better to address significant problems and then uh, seek to convey those ideas to those whose function it is to act on their behalf through the political processes of this country. If, if that doesn't work, <clears throat> then democracy doesn't work. Uh, and obviously, we have always had to work at the job of citizenship. So I would like to think that, that this talk and the other talks that, that are being given in the forum are helping the, the, those who listen and who, whether they agree or not, to think harder about their own views and how to communicate them. Thank you, sir. What are your thoughts on the refusal of the United Nations to honor its financial commitments to the UN? The United Nations, United States. The United States refusal to honor. <clears throat> well, in a word, I think it's a disgrace. <laughs> we are, as it has been said, in fact, I said long time ago, in testimony to Congress and in letters to Congress at least 10 years ago, <clears throat> that we were already then the world's largest deadbeat. And the phrase has been repeated since with greater and greater justification as time goes by. I could have given another speech addressing the value of the investment in the United States in terms of, of what it saves in, in direct investment in military force, for one thing. But I, uh, <clears throat> there is something to be said for the legitimacy of trying to get the U.S. share of peacekeeping scaled down. But in the meantime, uh, we have a treaty obligation, and we, the United States, profess to be in the forefront of the cause of extending the rule of law. And to put it briefly, we, we, couldn't be, we couldn't have found a, a way of setting a worse example. One member of the audience asks, isn't it time for Cuba to be welcomed back at a nation uh, as one of the nations of the world, welcomed by all nations? Well, of course, Cuba is uh, on perfectly good footing with everybody else in the world except the United States. As it happens, I am the chairman of the task force on Cuba of the Inter-American Dialogue. Uh, after several uh, failed attempts, we finally got to Cuba last June. We issued a, a fairly extensive report and recommendations about six weeks ago. Uh, and what we say very briefly is that, that uh, the United States would have a more effective role in addressing the situation in Cuba if we opened up communications, encouraged more travel by Americans and so on, if we challenged the Cuban government to take steps toward democratization and recognition of human rights, then by maintaining the embargo. We found in Cuba that, that from representatives of the Cuban ministries through to the uh, 
the Archbishop of the Roman Catholic Church that the most effective factor now sustaining the government of Fidel Castro is the embargo because it becomes the explanation for everything that goes wrong. And the hostility of the United States demonizes us and thereby indirectly helps to unify support of the government. One person asks, should we expand the Security Council and change the voting procedures of the United Nations? Should we what? Expand the Security Council and change the voting procedures. I think we should expand the Security Council. I, I think, for example, that uh, Germany and Japan should be on it, and I think there should be probably three or at least two representatives of large developing countries. And I, I hope that this will be done before long. The, uh, as to the voting procedure, you, the first question you, that comes up in that connection is, should uh, the number of countries with uh, veto power be expanded? Uh, and, and it would be difficult to choose among any of the additional countries that I've just mentioned. The, uh, there may be ways of qualifying the veto or allowing certain actions to go forward despite the objection of uh, one or more permanent members. In any case, I would hope that the process that addresses enlargement will address these questions. As to the UN General Assembly, I'm not aware of any need for reform. The UN General Assembly votes are, in any case, not binding on any government. They are, in a sense, a way of recording the, the sense of the membership toward a significant issue. They can, they, they do determine the budget of the UN, and they can create mechanisms. The Law of the Sea Conference, in which I represented the United States for four years, was called the third United Nations Conference on the Law of the Sea, and was brought into being by a UN General Assembly resolution. But uh, the General Assembly can't compel any member state to take any action, and I think there's no way uh, in which that can be changed. Otherwise, you would have enormously difficult problems of waiting voting and so on, which uh, problems that organizations that do take binding action like the World Bank have had to address, but only within the narrow frame of its function, comparatively narrow, that is. Mr. Richardson, you said in an earlier conversation that the most satisfying thing that you've done in your career cannot be, cannot be focused on any particular thing that you have done, but on public service itself and the privilege of public service. I want to thank you at the end of our time this morning for your gentle and strong spirit of conscience, uh, for helping us to think bigger than we might have thought before we came to this place, for helping us to recognize again that what happens to one of us happens to all of us, whether as individuals or as nations. And we wish you well. You are writing a book, and we look forward to reading it. 
Thank you for being with us today, and thank you for being at the Town Hall Forum. Thank you very much.